Welcome to Season 4 of The Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders every week to help you navigate the economic and investing landscape. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to The Farcast. Thanks so much for being with us again this week. It is June the 10th. June the 10th. Here we go. Coming down to the last three weeks here of the second quarter. Wow, it's been a very interesting quarter. Vaccines are in arms. Things are reopening earlier than people thought. Inflation numbers are coming in hot. CPI coming out later this morning. Consumer price index is supposed to be a hot number that's going to rock markets. The 10-year treasury is yielding below, check this out, below 1.5% this morning. That's not a healthy sign of a recovering economy. What is this going to mean for stocks? What does it mean for policy? President Biden is traveling. Vice President Harris has just, I think, finished traveling. I think she's back from being in South America. Boy, didn't get a lot of props for that particular trip, Madam Vice President. What went wrong there? What is the president going to do on his big trip and his big meeting with Putin coming up? Iran is causing problems. Dan Mahaffey's going to talk about all of that. And then where can you go for yield in this market? All of these are topics we're going to cover this morning's uh, today on the forecast as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Starting with Kenny Polcari from Case Capital Advisors, our old friend uh, uh, from the forecast, now four seasons with Kenny on the forecast, the voice of the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome back, KP. Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure to be here. How are you? You look I'm good. I should just, just say, great. you look great. You look great. We, we ought to do this as a video, folks, uh, just so you can see Kenny early in the morning here. Uh, Kenny, futures are up and everybody's saying we're going to be rocked by this uh, very hot inflation CPI number and markets are going to go crazy. It's going to be the highest number we've ever seen. What do you make all that noise? Well, you know, here's the deal, because I was thinking about this. They've certainly prepared the markets for uh, a high number in terms of 4.7% year over year on the top line at 3.5% X food and energy. Um, and so if it comes in at that level, I don't think the market does anything because they've, they've so prepared us for it, right? The fear is, or the, or the, or the question is, is it going to come in hotter than that? Is it going to have a five handle on it? Cause I think if it has a five handle on it, then the market will back off, but that's not what futures are telling you at the moment. Right. Although they're not a big Dow's up 54 and the S and only up one. The fact is that they're not down, right? They're not down big ahead of that number. So it doesn't appear to me that the market is concerned that the number is going to be much hotter than what the expectation is. Um, and so it's going to be interesting because look, there's a lot going on and it very well could, it very well could surprise us. Uh, except I don't think it's going to surprise. I just don't get the sense based on what I see in yield treasury yields, as well as Dow futures that it's going to have a five handle on it. So you think it's going to be, you think it's going to be, uh, you think it's not going to be hot, but you think markets get spooked if they are hot. Do you really think that Jay Powell cares if it's 4.8 or 5.2? I mean, does that really change his calculus? 
I think it has a five handle on it. I don't think it. I don't think so much it changes his calculus, but I think it changes the tone of his conversation. You if think this a, is a psychological reaction with yes. a five handle? Yes. I mean, it's not a material reaction. I mean, what you know, two tenths of a percent isn't going to change the world. There, no, but it? it's just it's it's psychological, right? Because it, now it's a five, and five is different from four. Um, and so five, you know, when you first look at it, the the reaction will be, oh my God, it's five. It's got a five handle on it, and so therefore uh, inflation must be where it's on that. So I think it'll just change the tone of the conversation. I don't think it's going to change his mindset at all. I think the Fed is intent because I think they've been hinting now for a while uh, by putting, you know, they're floating both those balloons, right? It's it, with some Fed members saying, oh, it's time to talk about it. Other ones going, oh, no, we're not there yet because they're trying to test the market. And so um, I think by all accounts that we're going to hear that in the Jackson Hole meeting in August, that they are going to start the tapering conversation uh, later in the year. And I think it's probably a November December event, not a September October event, because September October tends to be a volatile two months in the market anyway. And so for the Fed to go, oh, by the way, we're going to start tapering in October and September October. I don't think that's happening. I don't think the last thing. Do you really think there's a gentle way for them to introduce this taper topic? I mean, they did sell corporate bonds uh, out of their portfolio a couple of weeks ago, and markets didn't seem to care. I mean, it was a I, mean, I don't know, it wasn't a huge amount. No, it wasn't a huge. I mean, it was a few billion dollars. Right. It was a few billion versus, you know, what they're, the, the treasury, what they're talking about was 7.3 trillion uh, in terms of the tapering conversation versus what was it, 10 billion or something in the, in the corporate bond market that they had. But so, so in that sense, it was very different, but I think the only way that they can kind of introduce it where they're going to try to control markets is just by, they're going to keep hinting. They're going to keep get, getting people used to the idea that it's coming. They're not going to just all of a sudden pick up the phone one day and say, okay, we're doing it. They're going to give the markets, as Jay Powell said, plenty of runway, plenty of time to consider it, plenty of time to think about it. And so I think if they do it correctly, they will be able to jawbone the reaction. And the reaction would be obviously what they're trying not to do is create a swift negative uh, reaction. And I think if they jawbone it enough, they may just succeed in doing that. Jawboning is one of the Fed's tools that they will go to. Uh, and and uh, it's a little bit uh, hackneyed, as uh, as phrases go, about jawboning. But uh, they do it for they really do need to do it. They need to go out and tell the market what they're going to do long before they do it and get That's everybody uh, everybody prepared so that you don't get these wild reactions. One thing we know, ladies and gentlemen, is markets hate to be surprised. And we probably ought to add a caveat to that. If markets hate to be surprised in general, they especially hate to be surprised by the central bank. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, that's a because that's that's serious as a heart attack. Surprising. I mean, that when those folks move, the whole world changes. Kenny, this week we saw nine point three million job openings, right. job openings, right. job wanted posted openings. Incredible. That was up it? from eight point one, eight point two million. So this is a new record job openings. And I hear politicians and President Biden saying, we're going to create jobs. And I'm sitting here thinking, what in the hell for? Why don't you create some workers? Well, right. And look at this. And if you looked at continuing claims numbers, there are still 3.6 million people that continue to go back and collect money every week, right? Initial jobless claims that maybe are going down, but the continuing claims are people that are going, oh, I can't find a job. I need to go back and collect more unemployment money. And that is absolute baloney considering what you just said. There are 9 million jobs out there. 9.3. Don't forget the almost, point three. Oh, Those point three almost, people. There's almost three jobs for every person that's looking for one. Yes. 
right? Yes. Uh, considering jobs. there's 3.6 million people that continue to go back uh, 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 on the dole and collect the money. So, so it's amazing to me that they're all sitting there going, oh no, we need to create jobs and we need to continue to pay these unemployment benefits because you know people are suffering. Go out and get a job. There's plenty out there if you want them. Rob Whitford uh, is, uh, runs a Precision Marine uh, in Delaware and uh, they build docks and they do seawalls and they're marine engineers. He tells me he could employ three more full crews and have many more projects underway if he could bring employees back to work. Just employees who've worked for him before that he could get them back to work, they're getting more money in benefits than they than he can afford to pay them. I said, well, why don't you, if you've got all this demand and everything, why don't you pay them more? He said, I still at these levels can't make those economics work. Right. You've got to get the government out of my damn way and get them out of the pocket. So it's a free enterprise right. that wants to do work and... Uh, there's a shutting out of opportunity somewhere. Now, it's going away in the fall, and I guess politically we just have to wait for it to go away. And well, maybe, you know, but you're going to see wage inflation continue to go up. I mean, that's exacerbating inflation. They're putting more money in, right? Yeah, 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 no doubt. And look, yesterday you saw, yesterday Chipotle came out and said they're raising prices by 4 or 5% because not only have food prices gone up, but uh, but wages are going up, right? They're, they're trying to pay more money to attract people. And even that, look, I was out to dinner on Saturday night in uh, in Palm Beach at Biche, right? Which is an Italian restaurant. The place was packed. People out the door waiting to get in. Yet, I have to tell you something. The service was horrible. Why? Because they don't have enough servers, right? They don't have enough right. service. So it took a long time to get your food. It took a long time. To, and I'm going, where are all the servers? We can't hire people. People are not coming in. We'd be happy to hire them. We are not getting people coming in looking for a job. And so, you know, you there know, is something really, there is something really bothersome that when the Polcaris <laughs> finally go out to dinner, they go to an Italian restaurant. Really? <laughs> I mean, that? you cook Italian at home all the time and you go out to an Italian. Have you ever been to a French restaurant no, in your listen, life? No, listen, I have been, but we were entertaining other you just guests. You don't like them? No, no, we were entertaining other guests that wanted Italian food. So I go to where my guests are. Michael, if I took you out to dinner and you say you want to go Italian, I say, okay, great. Of course, we're going to go Italian. So I bring you in for Italian. I don't know. It sounds, it sounds, sounds kind of bigoted of you, uh, not uh, open-minded. Uh, you I'm, don't sound very woke, Kenny. I'm, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. You, know, you don't sound very... woke. I mean, I think if you were a little woke, you might do a little Indian, a little Asian. You might try. I have to tell French. you. I have to tell you, I have we, to tell you. I, can I'm we not, get you out of Western Europe at all? You can, but I have to tell you, I've tried Indian food. I just don't, I'm not a big curry person. I'm sorry, I just am not a big curry person. And so I don't do well with Indian food. Oh God, do you know how many millions, uh, I mean, people we just offended I here? Know, I know. Uh, and I mean, so, like I just, a billion, like I a billion. You, I hear you, but I just don't do good with curry. What do you want me to tell you? You just, you want a billion people tell them you like, you know, okay, well, okay. All right, I love we, curry. There you go. You love curry. Perfect. Your, your ratings just went up people. in India. I love curry. Perfect. Uh. Perfect. All right. Uh, now look, Kenny. We got we to gotta take a look back here at you markets. You got me in so much trouble just now. So much trouble. Uh, <laughs> we've got the uh, 10-year Treasury has ticked back up again, above 1.5%. Uh, Dow futures still look up this morning. Uh, the NASDAQ down, we're here coming in right into the end of the quarter. So this is a no-news time of year. Markets are kind of drifting. Um, what what takes the market? Where do you see this market for the through the end of the year? And then... Uh, believe it or not, we got to go. 
Listen, I do, in the end, think that by the end of the year, the market's going to be in a better place, right? I think we're going to be higher from where we are now. But I would like to see the correction come before it ends up being higher by the end of the year to give people, you know, give people, uh, give me especially, more time to put some more money to work at better prices. But one way or the other, I do think by the end of the year, the market's going to be in a, a slightly better place. I don't think it's going to be tremendously better. Look, the S&P is already up 12.5%. So if we end the year up 15 or 18%, and then you add in dividends, we're almost at 20%. That's right? a damn good uh, year. That's a damn good year. Are you kidding me? That's a great year. And look at the Russell's already up 18%. Right. Yeah. The Dow and yeah. the S&P are up 12 and the, the Nasdaq. So it's lagging a little bit up eight. But last year it was up 45 percent. So, you know, I'm OK with that. One thing that I look at, of course, is what's happening with the cash balances. Banks returned like half a trillion dollars to the Federal Reserve, uh, put it back to the Fed because they didn't want it to impair their capital ratios, which means banks don't know what to do with the cash. And there's four point six trillion dollars sitting in money market accounts right money so market accounts right so what so does that any mean? kind of correction kenny is going is to be, going to be with fine so you're not a going couple to get of days that. that's right you're not going to necessarily get a 10 or 15 percent correction the minute the market goes down about five or seven percent all of a sudden everyone comes running in because it's that fear of oh my god here's my opportunity again and then because the market's going to take off it doesn't really have a chance to uh, operate you know free cat free markets right it just doesn't at the moment um, so we're going to watch, but your your overall bias, though, is a, a higher closing uh, on the year is what I, I'm hearing from you. I, I do think that we will be a little bit higher from here. Not substantially, but higher from here. Yes. Maybe with a correction in between. I hope there's a correction in between. Sounds I like hope. you've got some cash you need to put to work. I have some cash I need to put to work. Yes, See, this I is do. the way This is the way we <laughs> interpret and speak. You have to translate <laughs> Kenny uh, as, what he, as what he means there. How about sushi? Would you do sushi? I love sushi. Okay. I love the I mean, Japanese. I, I love sushi. <laughs> all right. There are not as many Japanese. I don't know if you know this as there are uh, 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 Indians. Right. But, but, but I love but, Chinese food, too. There's a lot of Chinese people. I love Chinese food. OK. All right. I, I think I need to I need to come over to Boca and take you out to Chinese just so that I can get your picture in a, like a Chinese I, restaurant. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to come back with Dan Mahaffey next to explain what's going on. Uh, with the president traveling. You know, the old saying is when a president gets in trouble with domestic co policy, he travels. Right. They, they go for foreign policy. We'll see what Mahaffey says when we come back. This has been the great Kenny Polcari, Case Capital Advisors, and the voice of the New York Stock Exchange. Kenny, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, pal. I'll see you. We'll, we'll be back, and we'll see if we can get Kenny out of Italian restaurants. Please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, 
Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining us now, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, our senior political analyst on season four here of the uh, Farcast. And we're coming into season five, just a couple of months. We're going to tick over into a new season of the Farcast. God, it's exciting. Where are my T-shirts, Harry? T-shirts actually uh, got lost in the uh, got lost in transit, oh, yeah. so we're having a new batch printed. Uh, that uh, we had a uh, had a batch that should have been here last week. Oh, you're kidding me. Okay, because you know the fans have been the fans have been uh, sending right. emails. A lot of people, a lot of demand for the farcast. I, I, I guess I guess Postal Commissioner DeJoy is not a fan of the podcast. <laughs> and we've been relatively nice to him, but I'm I, and I'm really? not feeling nice anymore. You lost my damn shirts. Okay. Um, I mean, seriously, that's bad. Dan, uh, the vice president has been uh, traveling to South America. That trip has been panned as, as, as mm -hmm. not having been a very good trip. The president is traveling now uh, to Europe and he's going to he's got the uh, G7 and he's going to meet with Putin. And uh, that trip is looking like it's going to be very dicey for him. Iran has a couple of boats uh, out trying to get to Venezuela uh, with arms. And um, that's uh, the president's not happy about that. The U.S. is not happy about that. And he's not going they're not going to be happy about wherever those particular ships are allowed to dock. And so there's a lot of a uh, lot of political international intrigue going on. Tell us what you're seeing. Give us your priorities. How did how did the vice president do? What's going on with the boats? And give us a tell. Yeah. Tell us about the president's trip, too. Well, we'll start at the, the border and the trip to Central America and Mexico by Vice President Harris. And look, Vice President Harris is a, a uh, well, let's not dispute, she's a brilliant woman. She has a hard time communicating in some of these media interviews. It's it's what did her in uh, in her campaign for the presidency. And it was a concern going into the uh, administration. How would she handle some of these things? And look, that, that Lester Holt interview didn't go well. I, I will admit that. I will acknowledge that, look, she's facing a, uh, a pretty intractable problem at the border. And look, you can critique her for go not going to the border. Well, I think her critics would go after her no matter what she did. But at the same time, she's had this mission where you have to go to some of these very corrupt, very impoverished countries in Central America and try and stop the flow of migrants. That's that's the effort there. So I see the logic there. I don't think no. I don't think this worked well politically. It did not look good. Uh, the good news, I think, for for her, if she has her 2024 aspirations, it's it's early in this round. Did she accomplish anything on this trip? I think at least in terms of a U.S. official there delivering a strong message not to come, uh, I would be interested to learn more in what was said in her private bilaterals with the Mexican president. Uh, still, I don't think much in the way of immediate uh, accomplishments, though let's see how this, so, this message uh, is so received. So no, you agree it was a bad trip for, uh, for Vice President Harris? I, this was not a good trip. Not a good trip. President's taking a trip. President. Yeah, he's off to the G7. Too. Yes, huh? he's off to the G7, off to see Boris Johnson and the other G7 leaders in Cornwall, uh, and then some more uh, the other encounters in Europe. The summit. The, with the photo ops are going to be very interesting to watch there. The body language to see how they receive uh, uh, President Biden as opposed to the body language when they were with President Trump. That was a there was a, a little special circle around President Trump. 
with, uh, particularly Angela Merkel and a number of the others, uh, right. giving President Trump his space. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm interested. To, yeah, and I'm interested to see with Boris Johnson because the you know the special relationship post Brexit. Uh, there are many Tories who think uh, Joe Biden is a Sinn Fein member. Uh, oh, good. You know, there's you know there, there's all that kind of stuff that you'll have to, to deal with. But look, we, we always thought of Boris Johnson as kind of Trump's mini me, uh, but it's far more complicated than that. And let's see how he does with Biden, particularly as the the Irish the Northern Ireland question is heating up too. Was there more to it, do you think, than just the hair? <laughs> Look, it's a little bit of the the speak from the hip style, the, yeah. you know, the uh, I'm among the wealthy, but not one of them type of behavior, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, does does uh, what what constitutes a political win for President Biden at the G7? I think uh, getting the G7 countries together on a, a stronger position on China, I think so much of this Europe trip is about managing the relationship with Europe, uh, perhaps, you know, not a uh, agreement or reset with Russia, but perhaps more of a, at least a detente on some of those issues to really focus on China specifically, to get the industrialized democracies to look at the, the China challenge is, is a big one. Uh, beyond that, there's some of these other things we've seen, the, the minimum corporate tax proposals. Uh, those are things that, look, the, the difficulty there is actually more with the Europeans than the U.S. Uh, but those are, you know, mainly the, the big picture is this geopolitical realignment counter China. Are we seeing President Biden's domestic agenda kind of, um, uh, I mean, language would be kind, I think, would be a kind word. Collapse might be too strong, but uh, he was looking for a 30% corporate tax in the U.S. That's gone away, and now we're talking about this 15% minimum international tax. No reason in God's green earth that Ireland would ever agree to that. I mean, it, it, it's, that, that hurts them. It hurts them economically. Well, yeah, look, everyone complains about that. The British proposed it and then immediately asked for a carve-out for the city of London. Right. I mean, so everybody wants to be special. So that's going nowhere. Right. What are we going to do? So uh, and, and I just spoke at a conference. I spoke at the Matheson Financial Conference in Dallas, Texas last weekend. And this is a serious conference, ladies and gentlemen, of a bunch of CEOs of uh, not only investment banking uh, and accounting and legal companies that that uh, that deal with infrastructure, but a lot of CEOs of infrastructure companies, not a huge conference couple hundred people, but over two thirds are CEOs and chairmen, and, 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 and like 70% are all C-level executives around infrastructure in this country. Right. So this, is a, this was a very, very important group. They, they, they were asking me questions, one, about taxes, about interest rates, and was there going to be an infrastructure bill? That's all they wanted to know. Uh, and, 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 you know, some of it's predictable, but those really are three very important questions. So Dan, I, I, taxes, yeah. it doesn't look like we're going to get much in terms of tax increases. You've been saying that since before Biden was elected. Right. And that's because with Joe, with Joe Manchin, not on board, Kirsten Cinema, they, they take the brunt of this, but there are plenty of other Democrats who don't want the full Biden tax increases and the full spending. We, we've talked about others like Mark Warner, uh, John Tester, who aren't full on on the, on the tax uh, side. Uh, look, there's acknowledgement that his plans for uh, 
capital gains shouldn't go the, the full rate that they want. I think there will be an infrastructure deal. The, the House is working on regular order through highway bills. There's going to be spending in that way. I don't think it's going to be Biden's full agenda because what we also have to remember to a certain extent is, is Biden doesn't operate in a vacuum and Mitch McConnell's summer agenda is actually working quite well. So taxes, taxes going up? No. No, not, not for, I, I don't see any tax increase for anyone under $400,000. Now, look, I will acknowledge the, the Bezos, this IRS leak is changing a lot of the window around how you look at some things like perhaps a wealth tax or an alternative minimum tax, something to address the fact that our tax system is focused on income rather, wage income rather than wealth building. There are going to be maneuvers around that that has changed since then. I The bottom line is I don't see a massive tax hike in terms of the numbers, but I'm going to say, look at the things like the, the real estate and investment tools used by these billionaires and those loopholes, those are going to be targeted. So not necessarily a rate hike, but a lot of those pass-throughs, tools, you know, some people are going to see their effective taxes go up, but I okay. don't see the 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 tax system. Capital as a gains tax out. is the one that everybody's focusing in on. Does that go higher? I think that goes slightly higher. It doesn't. I don't think Biden gets its full uh, thing, but for the the higher income brackets, I think there will be a, a some increase in the the capital gains rate. And my thought is, my my best guess is from folks I'm talking to is it's not retroactive. Yeah, I think they they that they don't want to get into that mess. They don't want to get into going, that mess at all. Particularly no. going into an election year. Uh, yeah, that makes complete sense. Okay, so you've got this scenario now, really, if I'm reading between the lines here, there's sort of a, a difficult summer coming, it could be for Democrats, and a difficult summer lining up for Republicans, yes? Yeah, I think I think each side has sort of their their, their long, hot summers are coming. The, the Republicans all start- The nightmare with, summer. Yeah, the, the Republicans are still dealing with the the realignment of the the Trump era that that has not gone away. The the Liz Cheney story right. did not die on Memorial Day. Uh, however, the as he goes back to these rallies and becomes the are face you saying of the it's party a nightmare again, for Republicans to have Donald Trump reemerge? I think for for a lot of these ones you talk to on the Hill, yes, the among the base, the base is thrilled to see him reemerge. It puts a lot of them who want to move on to, to 2022, because every time we're talking about Trump, we're not talking about Biden's spending. We're not talking about crime going up in cities. We're not talking about any of the Republican talking points counter Biden when we're talking about Trump. Right, right. And, right. and then so, also that just ties the Republican Party to, to January 6th further, the more Trump is out there. For, here's so a, that's here's their, a quick characterization. If you'll let me, if, 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 tell me what you think about this. A third of of, of the, the country uh, or so, uh, still a majority of the Republican Party, um, are, are really support, strongly support President Trump. But that's not enough to elect him president, but it is enough to imperil another Republican candidate. It, it, is, and it is, and it's enough to affect your Republican primary, uh, what he says or does. Okay, uh, so do you think that that very quickly? Because I got to move on, and we're almost out of time. Do you think we are? Jesus, uh, do you think that the uh, House flips, and do you think the Senate flips at midterms? I think right now the Senate does not flip. I think the House does. 
Okay. Uh, finally, we've got some uh, Iranian ships uh, with arms uh, heading to South America. Uh, I've got one minute. Please tell me what happens. Yeah, the, the, the Iran-Venezuela axis of loco uh, continues. Yeah, the axis of the, loco. I like it. Yeah, but look, the, the it's international trolling. I don't think there's anything that an Iranian boat or Venezuelans could do to actually threaten the security of the United States, but it's just a, another reminder that these guys like to like to stick it in our eyes sometimes. Okay. Uh, beyond that, the president ultimately, is his trip going to go reasonably well? Does he get some points for this trip, or is he walking on minefields too? I think, uh, look, let's. it's gone so far so good. Uh, Putin's going to be tough, and the other one not getting a lot of attention. I'm interested to see how he does with the Turkish president, Erdogan, given all their uh, back and forth as well. Ah, fascinating. We're going to come back next week, Dan. We're going to try and make sense of all of this uh, and figure out what it's going to mean for a long, hot summer for both parties. Ladies and gentlemen, when we come back, Jenny Harrington from Gilman Hill Advisors, one of my great buddies on Wall Street, one of the brightest people, brightest human beings you're ever going to talk to. And um, she's just very, very nice, too. Uh, so when we come back, what do you do about income for investors on Wall Street in a one and a half percent 10 year rate environment? Please stay with us. Thank you for joining us on the forecast. And now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Joining me now, Jenny Harrington, CEO of Gilman Hill Advisors, a CNBC contributor, one of the brightest folks and nicest folks I ever get to talk to on Wall Street. I say it every time because that part doesn't change. As she is really, really bright and she is really, really nice. She has a very interesting business, too, ladies and gentlemen. She takes an income approach to client portfolios in a world of a one and a half percent 10 year treasury. She finds incomes for clients and um, that's not an easy thing to do. She is uh, also very disciplined in her investment approach, very thoughtful, and she sticks to her discipline. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to do one thing as an investor, have a clear, well articulated discipline and stick to it. Good times and bad eschew the emotion. Emotion is your foe at every turn. And if you want help, you call somebody like Jenny Harrington or maybe even me. Hey, Jenny, welcome back to the Farcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the lovely introduction. We are so, <laughs> we're so glad you're here. And you know, I, I really feel like I undersold you. So there, um, <laughs> Jenny, what are you making of the markets here? And we had this hot CPI number this morning. It looks like inflation really is heating up. The Fed says it's going to be transitory. Does the Fed blink? Do they start to raise rates too soon? Do they mess all this up? Are we going to be okay? I worry, Jenny. I get worried about all of this stuff. Do you worry? <laughs> well, I think we're both professional warriors. And all kidding aside, I think that's what we're paid to do. Um, yeah, hand wringing on behalf of others. Yes, I always tell my clients, you know, you trust me. If you're worrying about inflation, I've been worrying about it probably far before you were. That's yes. our job as portfolio managers is to look ahead. I think they say conventional wisdom is looking ahead six to nine months. I think I try to look ahead 
12, 5, 10, you know, 12 months, five years, 10 years, I try to always look ahead. And when you always try to look ahead, you're always worrying. So I think getting back to your question of does the Fed mess it up and will we be okay? Um, maybe the Fed messes it up. I don't know. Only time will tell. Whether they do or don't, we'll be okay because we're long-term investors and we take a long-term approach. And what we know is that we know that the market marches steadily up over a long time. So whether like, and we also know we're going to have bumps in the road and whether those bumps come from the Fed messing up inflation or not, um, there will be a bump from something. But we also know that in three years, we're going to look back, we're going to be okay. You know, in the markets, it's, it's, uh, it's really, I think probably the, the one place where bumps are clearly opportunities. That's not Pollyannish, ladies and gentlemen. Without bumps, we don't find these buying opportunities. Without bumps, we don't get these pullback in prices. I mean, buying high to sell higher is a really stupid long-term investment thesis. It, I mean, can you get away with it? Sure. Do you get the do you get the GameStop people trying to do this? Is that the whole thesis behind Bitcoin? Buy high, sell higher. I mean, yeah. I mean, and if you're going to talk to a Jenny Harrington, if you're going to talk to a Michael Farr, if you're going to talk to a Jim Labenthal, if you're going to talk to a Stephanie Link, if you're going to talk to any of, of our great colleagues, they're going to tell you, I want some there, there in these investments. I want to know that there's a balance sheet. I want to know that there's income. I want to know that there's a moat around that business and that it's not a commodity that anybody else can just get into tomorrow. I want to buy good businesses because that's what endures, Jenny. Tell us what you do with your portfolio now in this sort of an environment. So, so this is a really hard environment to make investments in. And I was complaining to my partner, Greg, the other day that my opportunity set for new investments is as thin as it's ever been right now. And so really? I always have, yeah, I always have a mixed relationship with a good market. On the one hand, it's awesome being up a lot on the air. Yeah. It's wonderful to be able to yeah. send my clients quarterly reviews with huge numbers. Um, on the other hand, it makes the it makes making new investments incredibly difficult because there just aren't many out there. Whereas last year at this time, we had our pick of the litter. Last year at this time, we had great businesses with steady cash flows, with steady earnings, with, with a lot of there there trading at five times earnings with a 5% dividend yield. Um, and this year, that's not the case. So this year, the work is harder and it's thinner. Um, and I think one of the, so here's, I think a big difference between this year and last year. I have fewer names in my portfolio. Last year, I had about 37 stocks in the portfolio. This year it's 30 um, at this point. So I have higher. Are you fully invested with that 30? Have you reallocated so that you stay fully invested or do you have a higher cash balance? I have a little bit higher cash, but not too meaningfully. It's about five, five to 8% right now, depending on the portfolio. So it's not like a 30% cash weighting. Um, and actually this afternoon, I've got a call set up with one of the management teams of one of the companies that I'll probably buy. So that'll leave up a lot of the cash too. Um, but I think- you want, to, you, you want to tell us which company you're thinking about buying? I can't. Ah, <laughs> Sorry. I tried, ladies and gentlemen. You heard me try, right? I tried. I'll, maybe I'll when you come back, maybe you'll come back after you buy it and tell us what you just bought. I would love to. Truly. Oh, that would be great. It's a really uh, interesting story, and, too. And do and, and you know what, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we will try and add an addendum 
uh, in a week or two, we'll get an update from Jenny just on that because that'll be fascinating, won't it, to find out what Jenny's buying for income after she talks to the management. That'll but be you cool. Know what? Okay. I can tell you what I bought last in the last company I bought because it's a similar profile is a company called Medical Properties Trust. And so I was having an argument with a client over dinner the other night where he's saying things are terrible. This market's right. terrible. Look at all the debt we've borrowed, how everything is inflated. I don't want to be invested. Shouldn't we get out? Blah, 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 blah. I said, well, that's one side of it. And you might be right. And you can look at the FANG stocks and they're trading at 39 times earnings still, even after all that's gone on. But at the same time, you can also own Medical Properties Trust, which has 425 hospitals globally. They've proven their revenue stream through 0809 through last year. It's got a 5.2% dividend yield right now. They'll probably grow earnings in the three to 6% range. Like that's better than a bond. It trades at about 13 times earnings. So it's not trading at the market multiple. So there's always, there are always things to find even if there aren't as many and even if there aren't, um, and even if they're not as juicy. On the Medical Properties Trust, if I'd bought it a year ago, I probably would have had 100% upside expectation, but I buy it now. And I think maybe I've got, maybe I've got 15 to 20% upside in the share price over the next year and a half or two, plus I capture a 5.2% dividend yield. For this environment, that's terrific. For this environment, will we do what our clients hired us to do? Yes, keep them safe, give them a little growth in a nice, safe way, in a, in a business where there's there, there. Like, you know what? No matter what happens to the economy, no matter what happens to the debt burden, no matter what happens to inflation, hospitals and the revenues they produce are valuable. Um, so that's what you look for. I mean, that's what I look for. Yeah, that's case. very interesting. I mean, that's 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 very, very interesting. Um, and and you're doing more of this sort of research. So this isn't so, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry. When I uh, talk to um, um, other money managers and, and, and ask them what they do and ask them what their discipline is and they uh, tell me that they allocate among funds, I think, well, you're not a money manager. I mean, you're really not an investment manager. Maybe, maybe you're a financial planner, and that's great, and you're making good decisions there. But when a, a, an investment manager does what Jenny and I do, we talk to management, we go through balance sheets, we model companies, we understand businesses inside and out, um, and we do a whole lot of research. Uh, it's, this is not buying, this is not just saying, okay, well, I'm, I sort of like an area, so I'm going to add an ETF. So when she buys it, she really understands it. It's not to say she's not going to make a mistake. She's going to make mistakes from time to time, but you know, as an investment manager and God knows, I can't think of the, I could no, I couldn't possibly count all of the mistakes I've made over the years. And yet, you know, you, you look at it over time and here I'm still in the business 35 years later, probably haven't screwed it up all that badly, but you know. You know what, Michael, you bring something up about making mistakes, which I think is really important and really hard for clients sometimes to understand the importance of being able to make mistakes. Yes. I had a client, a doctor who I loved, and he was a cardiac surgeon. When I started working with him, he was in his late 80s and he was retired and he would call me every single day. Oh, Lord. Oh, yeah. And the portfolio could have, well, sorry, always had same thing, like about 30, 35 companies in it. And he didn't care if 34 of them were up. He would, only, he would obsess over the one that was down. Yes. And this one, I'm not joking. This is when I worked at Newberger. Every day, four years, this went on. And at one point he said to me, the thing that's so unfair here is that you can make so many mistakes and you're fine. 
And if I make one mistake, the patient dies and I get sued or I get sued. And I realized um, how important it is for us to be able to be to be able to make mistakes. And some people can't do that. And so I've thought a lot over the years about doctors and engineers often make the most difficult clients because they need perfection or, you know, things go massively wrong. I've never known a surgeon who, or anybody in any profession who didn't make mistakes. But I mean, truly, I mean, uh, yes, they could make a critical mistake and probably, you know, thank God, uh, we actually have come up with strategies that embrace those mistakes as part of what we do. And we do it in such a careful way that those mistakes will not be fatal. Right. Um, we know that it's out there. We know that ours is an imprecise art. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't take another discipline and, and, and superimpose it on this one and think that it's going to work, you know? Right. But I also think it's hard to make mistakes and to recover from those and to screw up on a on a investment and get back from it. I hate it. One of my business I, school professors, Bruce Greenwald, advised everyone keep a journal. And he, yes. and he said, the mistakes are going to teach you the most. And if you can go back and do a postmortem on your mistakes, you'll become a better investor. Now, naturally, I haven't done that, but I do think about it. <laughs> right. I do, I do think about my, uh, about my mistakes. You know, the other thing that I think has been very, very helpful to me is to go back and, and I have notes, of course, from client conversations through all of these different markets, uh, whether it was the 0809 period, um, whether it was last year in March during, you know, the beginning of the shutdown and the big market drop. But you said something very interesting, too, uh, about last fall when you were able to buy things and the conversations you were having with clients last fall, very different. Um, and, and, and the pushback that I got from clients during these down markets, the precise times that were perfect to buy, clients don't want to buy. No. Oh, Michael, this is a crazy. No, you can't buy now. No, this is look at what's going on in the world. Precisely when the world looks darkest is when you should be buying. Right now, we're at all time highs. As Jenny said, you know, she and I were talking earlier. There aren't the major things that we're worried about right now. We're worried about a reopening. We're worried about all of these gains. How are we going to handle all of this world of plenty? Uh, what a nice thing to think about. But things aren't cheap, are they? No, they're not cheap. You just made me think of something funny, which is that there is a directly inverse relationship between ease of client conversation and ease of investing, right? Yes. When there's everything to buy, the client yes. conversations are hard. When there's nothing to buy, the client conversations are easy. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, often at that last year of a bull market, I find our sell discipline, we have a clear sell discipline, it makes us sell things. So all of a sudden in a year where, and usually that last year is a very toppy year. So your gains are typically sub 10% in the final year, final, final year of a bull market. You're taking capital gains because stuff that you've held a long time is just so expensive. You can't reasonably hold it anymore. And then you can't find anything that meets your buy discipline. So your cash builds up on its own. And it's, 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 a, it's a very hard time. And, and oddly, we're not there yet. So the Federal Reserve got a hot number this morning, Jenny. Do you think Jay Powell's worried about a 5% CPI number? Will he blink? And you, or what do you think? When he starts to taper, will the markets tantrum? I don't 
think so. I don't know if he's worried about it or not. And I think whether he worries about it or admits that he's worried about it are two different things. But one of the things that we talk about here is that the cure for the next financial crisis is preparing for the next financial crisis. The cure for the next economic shutdown from a pandemic is preparing for that. But I they're always the different. Right? The next financial crisis will come from somewhere else. It's it's right. going to be this pack. It's going to be some stupid thing that we weren't really watching. I mean, getting you know, back what was when, what who the hell was looking? I didn't know what a credit default swap was in 2008. I mean, I found out about it. I didn't know what a sieve off balance sieve was for a bank. I didn't know a bank could have a billion dollars off balance sheet. I've done this, you know, basically all my professional career. You learn about these things that are out there that turn out to be exactly the things that bite you in the neck. Right. And so to that point in 2013, we learned what a taper tantrum was. And so yeah. I think that we will not. I actually don't think we're going to have another taper tantrum. And the reason being, we've prepared for it. We've prepared for it emotionally. We know what it is. It's oh, it's exactly what you just said. It's what you don't know that gets you. Yes. And this we do know, and this we've been talking about and thinking about, and the Fed's aware of what happened last time. We need to remember too, tapering, there's a direct, there's a really, really precise correlation between the Fed balance sheet and the S&P 500. And we need to remember that, it, that a taper does not mean the Fed's going to suddenly start shrinking their balance sheet. All it means is that they're not going to buy $120 billion a month. They're going to buy 90 or 80, but the balance sheet will continue to expand for quite some time. So that buys us time, I think, in S&P not, um, not moving down just because the Fed balance sheet's moving down. I, it's interesting, just yesterday afternoon, I got um, a research piece in my inbox from Credit Suisse, and the subject line is taking the tantrum out of the taper. So this is very much in the dialogue, maybe a month or so, JP Morgan yep. put out another piece talking about the same thing. So there are different dynamics, but there's also different awareness. Everything I've been reading for the last, I don't know, four months is the Fed will start talking about tapering on June 16th. The earliest they will start to taper is November. That's when we expect it to happen. This anticipation is going to be the, the reason we don't have the tantrum that we expect. Jenny, I can't believe it. We're out of time. Uh, between now and the end of the year, where do you look for markets to be? What are you looking for rates between now and the end of the year? Fred and Ethel are wondering what they should be doing too. Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I think I'm going to be a wimp on this and say status quo. I wouldn't be surprised if we end up the year with the market call it between 10 and 12%. But I don't think it's going to be a straight line between now and the end of the year. There's just no way that it's not bumpy and lumpy and doesn't give us some anxiety in between now and then. Um, I think rates are really interesting. I'll need to be honest. I was stunned to see them dip down from 1.6 on the 10-year to 1.4. Right. Um, I would have thought that we would see rates rise sooner. I really was expecting we'd end the year at 2 2.5%. doesn't look like we're going to be there. Um, so I'm going to kind of take the wimpy answer and say maybe around where we are now. I really don't know. Well, we'll wait and see. It could it, it, it could certainly go sideways. Kenny Polcari thinks we're going higher by the end of the year. You know, and, and, and there's a lot of cash out there. Four point six trillion dollars in money market funds tends to typically show that a pullback is going to going to be brief. You know, one other thing, Jenny, uh, you chair the investment committee for Hollins University. Yes. Yes. And, oh, sorry. And no, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't chair it. I serve on it. You serve on the investment committee. You're on the board of, of yep. Holland University. Uh, I chair a, 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 
investment committee for a not-for-profit that has over a billion dollars in it. You know, I think maybe you and I ought to come back and actually talk about how we counsel these large institutions about their investments, what sort of diversification, what sort of strategy, and how they think about the long-term and short-term volatility. What do you think about that? I would love that because I think what's neat there is when you get to work with an institution that has a truly long-term time horizon, you can do what's exactly precisely correct in terms of investing. You don't need to make the, you don't need to deal with the nuance of, okay, but you need $50,000 next week. You can really make pure investment decisions with really long time horizons. I think it'd be a fascinating conversation. Well, you know, I, I think the other uh, uh, part of that is so many of these committees on which I sit and have been part of for years get derailed by the newfangled investment, whatchamacallit. Uh, and is it really the Swenson-Yale model that everybody should be doing? Do you want 35% of your portfolio in alternative investments in hedge funds and private equity? Uh, there are a lot of folks who say yes. Far screams from the hilltops, no. And uh, Harrington echoes him. <laughs> shocking. And we will talk about that on, a, I think, a separate forecast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another week for the forecast. We will be back next week covering Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Thanks so much for being with us. Please share us on your social media. Have a wonderful week from Naples, Florida. I'm going to be in Naples next week, too. And then I'm heading back up north. Uh, I hope to see all my northern friends soon. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of the Farcast, and thanks to Michael's guest, Kenny Polkari, Dan Mahaffey, special guest, Jenny Harrington. We love hearing from you every week and try to respond to all of your notes and suggestions. You can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of Farm Miller & Washington, are not necessarily those of Farm Miller & Washington or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help, and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll be back with you next week with scheduled special guest Mona Mahajan, Chief U.S. Strategist for Allianz GI. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world.